Good morning, everyone. And my name is Adam. I am so glad that you are joining us this morning. As you heard about before, we are having some food and some inflatables at the end of this service. Because this is kind of our kickoff Sunday for the rest of the year. So we would love for you to stick around after our third service. We are also getting into a new sermon series. And this one is called Asking for a Friend. Now, maybe you've heard of that phrase before. You just kind of tack that at the end of a question when you don't want somebody to know that that question is coming from you. Maybe you feel like you should know the answer, or it's kind of an embarrassing question, or it's just like a question out of left field. So you're like, ah, I'm just asking for a friend. And there's been a bunch of times in my life where I wish I had covered up that I didn't really know something. There was a time a few years ago when I was out for breakfast with a bunch of guys from work, and the waitress asked me if I wanted home fries or hash browns. And as an adult man, I said, what are home fries? Because I did not know. Then it gets even worse. There was this one time when I was in a subway, and I meant to ask, how much is the foot long? I asked, how long is the foot long? And this, this lady just like laughed in front of me for like a minute straight, and I was just awkwardly like, Yep, it's a foot long. Should have said that I was asking for a friend, but no. Those are some silly questions, but in this series, we are tackling some not-so-silly questions from God's Word, but maybe they're questions that you just wouldn't go right out and ask somebody. And the question that we'll be asking this morning is, when does God give up on you? Like, is there a point when there's just too much sin and brokenness in your life where you feel like God has just given up like you're too much for him to handle he's like you've already blown it let me give my attention to people over here who already have their life cleaned up like is there a point when God gives up on you and we can understand as humans sometimes getting to that point where we just want to give up with somebody else this is how I feel about my dog so let me tell you about this last weekend if you <laughs> If you've been coming here for a while, you probably know how I feel about my dog, and this is not the first illustration I've used of him. But anyways, last weekend was Gabby's birthday, and it has been her dream since she has been very young to go to Connecticut, because apparently there's this TV show called Gilmore Girls, and the story takes place in Connecticut. Now, I can honestly say I have never seen even one episode of this show, and I am trying to keep it that way. But... It is our first year of marriage, and so I want to start things off right and just make her dreams come true. And so we took this trip to Connecticut, and as we were leaving this trip, we were thinking, we are banned from Airbnb for the rest of our lives. And it's not because we trashed the place, it's because we brought the dog. Now this place was dog-friendly. Dog friendly. I think they even loved dogs, because so there was like this basket full of like dog treats and dog toys. And it's this cute little cottage that's attached to a bigger house, and they had a dog. And so first thing in the morning, I'm talking like 3 a.m., there's a barking match going on between my dog and their dog. And Gabby's like, make him be quiet, and I have to shoot out of bed and be like, quiet, quiet. And then I try to get some sleep, and then he's like barking again, and I have to get up out of bed and try to keep this dog quiet so we can get some rest. And then in the morning... He missed his pee pad, and he made a mess in this house that isn't even mine. So I'm, like, trying to clean this place up, and it's probably never going to be the same. 
And then in the afternoon, we made some plans to go out into town, do some, like, go to coffee shops and thrifting. I guess that's what you do when you're married. And so anyways, we wanted to leave this house. And so I, I closed the doors behind us to leave the dog in this little cottage, take a few steps away. And I hear, row, 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 row. he starts barking. Then the neighbor dog starts barking. And Gabby's like, we cannot leave them to a barking match. They're going to ruin the day for the people who live in that house. And so we almost gave up on our plans for the whole afternoon just because we needed to keep our dog quiet. And all along, especially a few months ago, every time the dog would do something bad, I would point out what he did wrong and just wait for Gabby to say the magic words. I have always waited for her to say, you're right, this dog is just too much. He's blown it one too many times. It's not working out for our marriage. We need to find a new home for this dog. And I would have been like, yes! But Gabby's very different. And this dog could literally destroy the entire house. And she's like, oh, buddy, don't, don't do that. Don't destroy the house. Be better next time. But I still love you. It's very different from me. Like, if this dog puts one paw out of line, it's like, uh-uh. For her, she has so much love and grace for this dog. Now, let me bring it back to the question that we started with. What is God like? Like, if we take one step out of line, is he like, oh, it's too far, you're, you're too far gone? Or does he treat us with love and with grace? And so that's what we'll take a look at from God's word this morning in Luke chapter 15. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we'll be starting out in verse 1. And we'll also have it up here on the screen for you to follow along. So it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them? So in this scenario, we got Jesus and we got two crowds of people. And these crowds of people are about as different as they come. So on the one side, we have like the sinners and the tax collectors. And tax collectors are examples of like the worst of the sinners. It was widely known that tax collectors would ask for more money than they really needed to so they could pocket the extra money. And on top of that, they were employed by the Romans. And during this time in Israel's history, they were living underneath Roman oppression. And so for their fellow countrymen to be employed by the Romans meant that they were basically traitors. And so these tax collectors made themselves rich at the expense of their own people, and they were just so hated by the other Jews. But then on the other end of the spectrum, we have the Pharisees. And I'll give you a little history on the Pharisees. Like a few hundred years before Jesus set foot on earth, the nation of Israel was just rebelling against God. They were worshiping false idols, and they were sinning again and again. And so God tried to get their attention. He sends in prophets to get them on the right track, but they didn't listen to the prophets. And so finally, God raises up the Babylonian nation to defeat the Israelites and to carry them away into captivity. And they remained in that captivity for 70 years. And that woke up the people of Israel, and they realized that they don't want to be in that mess again. And so they'd better take seriously what God says in his word and live the way that God had called them to live. And they swung from one end of the pendulum to the complete other side. And so not only were they following God's rules, 
but they added rules on top of those rules to make sure that they did not disobey God's rules. And so as time goes on, all of this rule keeping started to turn into legalism. And so they started to take a lot of pride in their ability to keep these rules. And it became more and more about rule keeping and less and less about their relationship with God. And so they had a very cleaned up, picture perfect life on the outside, but they still didn't have this close relationship with God. But because they looked pretty good on the outside, they looked down on other people. And they're, they're looking at Jesus and they're like, if you are really the son of God, why would you spend your time with those people? Because those people's lives are a train wreck. They are living in sin and brokenness. And so the question comes down to, who should Jesus spend his time with? Are those people worthy of his time? Are those people worthy of his time? And so Jesus gets into three parables. A parable is really just a fictional story that teaches a spiritual lesson. The first parable that Jesus teaches is about a lost sheep. And the second parable is about a lost coin. And both of these parables have the same elements. Something is lost, and then it's found. And then there's a celebration to rejoice in finding what was once lost. And then Jesus concludes each of these parables with a spiritual lesson. And here's the spiritual lesson that we see in verse 10. He says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is talking about a party up in heaven every time somebody repents and turns their life over to God. And I think repentance can be a little bit of a churchy word. Like maybe you don't hear that word outside of church. It really just means to turn around, to switch directions. It's the picture of going one way and then turning around and going the opposite way. And so the spiritual connection here is that that Jesus is talking about people who are just going down the path of life, following their own desires, doing whatever they want to do, and they are lost to sin and brokenness. But then they repent. They have this turnaround point in their life where then they are headed in the right direction, where they make Jesus the leader and the forgiver of their life. And that's what it means to have a changed life. And every time that happens to somebody, there is a party up in heaven. Even here at Bridgewater, we celebrate this. This just represents a life that has been changed by Jesus. And maybe you wonder why we hold this up on every Sunday we have one of them and cheer. It's because we want to celebrate the things that God celebrates. And God celebrates every time somebody gets on the right track and follows after Jesus. And so then... Jesus finishes up these two parables, and he goes on to tell one more parable. And this is the longest of the parables that he tells in this section. And it has some different elements and twists than the other parables had. And this parable is about a father who has two sons. And these two sons are about as different as they can come. We've got the younger brother over here, and he's probably put a few gray hairs in his father's beard because He's just doing his own thing. He's on his own track. And then we got the older brother over here. And he would have been like the, the A-plus student in school. 
He's the kind of kid where people would probably come up to the father and be like, wow, you got a really fine young man right there. You must be so proud of him, probably so glad that he's going to carry on the family name. He's so different than this son over here because pretty early on, this son comes to the father and he asks for his cut of the inheritance before his father even dies. This is like a slap in the face to his father. He's basically saying, you are as good as dead to me. Like, I don't want to wait till you're dead till I have your money. I want your money right now. And this is such a crazy request. But what's even crazier than that is that the father grants his request. And he has to sell his property one-third of what he owns to be able to give this money over to his son. Because back in these days, a person's wealth is tied up in the land that they own. And that land was probably passed down from generation to generation and stayed within the family. And so it's probably connected to the father's identity. But he literally tears that apart to be able to give this to his son. And once his son has this money, he turns his back on his father and is like, see you later. And he goes into this faraway land. And the Bible says that he spends it on wild living. And to put it in today's terms, I think that this wild living would have been spending this money on prostitutes, getting into drugs, hosting these big drinking parties and surrounding himself with all of these friends who want to be around him just because he has money to hand out. And this was a pretty enjoyable lifestyle for a while until his money ran out. And then when his money ran out, his friends left him. He didn't have anything. And then a, a famine came upon the land. And it became even harder to get food. And desperate times call for desperate measures. And so he hires himself out to a farmer. And he has this job of feeding pigs. And as he's feeding the pigs, his stomach is growling. His mouth is watering. And it's because he's feeding the pigs better food than even he is eating. And he's thinking to himself, even my father's servants eat better than I am eating right now. And this is what brings him to a turnaround point. This is what we see in verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I, was, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. And so in his mind, he's like, there's no way that I am worthy to be part of my family again. I've already turned my back on the father. But what if I just come to my father as a hired worker? What if I can just pay back my father for this debt that I owe him? Like, there's no way that I can even come close to repaying everything that I've taken. But it's worth a try. It's better than what I've got going on now. But then put yourself in the father's shoes. And imagine if you saw your, your son coming back to you. Would you even want to take him back, even as a hired worker? Maybe not even as a son, maybe not even as a hired worker because he's hurt you so bad 
He's not trustworthy. All he cares about is what he can get. But let's take a look at how the father responds in this story. In verse 20, it says, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. It is a pretty big deal that this father runs to his son when he sees him off in the distance. Back in Jewish culture, it was pretty normal for kids to run, even for women to run. It was not normal for a grown man to run, and that's because they would wear this robe that would like go down to here. And so in order to get the mobility that he needed, he'd have to hoist that thing up. And it was a little bit of an embarrassing sight. But the father in this story, he didn't even care. He just wanted to get to his son as quick as he could. And when he finally reached his son, he wasn't like, you've made a mess of your life. What are all the things that you've gotten into? He didn't bring any of that up. He just cared about the fact that his son was back. He was lost, but now he is found. He was dead, but now he is alive. And so he threw this celebration that his son did not deserve. His son did not even deserve to be back in the family. But he puts this ring on his son, like the family signet, identifying that he is now back in the family and hosting this huge party because he loved his son. And this parable has all the same elements that the other two parables had that Jesus told about the lost sheep and the lost coin. That son was lost, but then he was found. The father hosts this celebration. But in this parable, there is a plot twist. And this plot twist is what we see in the heart of his older brother. And so while this celebration is going on, his older brother is out in the field. He's working hard, and he hears this commotion. And so he calls his servant. He's like, hey, go figure out what all that ruckus is about. And so the servant goes off, sees that it's a celebration for the returned brother. He comes back to the older brother, and he's like, it's a party going on for your younger brother. He's back. Your father killed the fatted calf, and they are, they're hosting a barbecue over there. But what's so crazy is what we see in the heart of this older brother. In verse 28, it says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this, young, this older brother, he is angry and he is upset because his father is showing his younger brother grace. And grace is giving somebody a gift that they do not deserve. That younger brother, he didn't deserve to be part of the family again. He didn't deserve to have this celebration. But that was a demonstration of the father's love to him and giving him this gift that he didn't deserve. But this older brother here, he was focusing on his, son, his sense of entitlement. He's like, you do that for your son who doesn't deserve it? I deserve it. I've been out here working in the fields. I've been doing all of these good things for you, and you haven't shown me that kind of celebration, that kind of appreciation. I deserve that because I've been good. And what we see in his life is that he was just like the younger brother in the beginning of the story. He's had this relationship with the father all along, but but he wasn't content with that relationship. He just wanted his father's stuff. He wanted those blessings because he had been good. And we see that he's really just as lost as his younger brother was in the beginning of the story because even he was missing this relationship with the father. And let's remember who Jesus is talking to when he's telling this story. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he's talking to tax collectors. And the tax collectors and the sinners, they're a lot like this younger brother. It is so obvious that they have messed up in life. They've got this track record of just following their own desires and not living for God. And then on the other side of things, we have the Pharisees. They're like that older brother. They've been following all the rules for God. And they've got this sense of entitlement like, God should accept me because I've been good. And to put it in today's term, we have people who are on this end of the spectrum and maybe you believe that God will not accept you because you've been bad because of this history in your life of doing things that you are ashamed of. There's times in your life where you wish that you could have a do-over and you probably think to yourself, how could God ever accept me because I have been so bad? But then on the other end of the spectrum, we have these people here where at the end of their life, if they were to stand before God and God were to say to them, why should I let you into heaven? They might say some things like, I have been a good person. I've devoted my life to doing things that are good. I'm not as bad as those other people. I have, I've gone to church. I've invited people to church. I've been baptized or I've had communion. I have been good, and so I should have this place in heaven. But the reality is that no matter what camp you are in, there's something that's missing. And what's missing is this relationship with God. And no matter where you're at, maybe you can identify with one of these camps. No matter where you're at, the question for all of us this morning 
is will you return to the Father? Will you seek after that relationship? Because that's what it's all about. Come to the Father, having that turning point and going from lost to found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a loving Father who does not give up on us. You are a God who shows us grace. You give us what we do not deserve. And God, even when we have really blown it, when we have a track record of not living for you, that it does not disqualify us from your love, that your love covers all of that. And so please help us to abandon any sense of entitlement and just be overwhelmed by your love and by your grace and to run to you. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah.
picture of being like that lost son running to his father but what does that really look like like in today's terms or for our practical life what does it really mean to run to the father or to put it in another way what does it take to get to heaven and I think it can be easy sometimes when we talk to heaven to just think about like this faraway place that we just go to at the end of our lives that's just like a paradise. And there's aspects of that that are true, but it is a paradise because that's where God is. Wherever God is, being in that relationship with him is heaven. It's about having a relationship with God that starts in this life and lasts for all of eternity. And so... If you think about that, heaven, relationship with God, most of us probably want that. We'll say, that's us right here. What's holding us back? And in Romans 3.23, it says, For everyone has sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. And if, if somebody sins just one time, a sin that's just any thought, motivation, or action that does not honor God, if we do that just one time, then we fall short of God's standard to get into heaven and to have this relationship with him because God's standard is perfection. And so as a barrier to us having this relationship with God and being with him in heaven is sin. 
And so we can try to, in our own strength, get rid of our sin problem. So maybe we try good works and be a really good person. We could try going to church every Sunday. Uh, maybe it's getting baptized or, or taking communion. Maybe that'll wash away your sin. And every time it's coming up short and it's still a barrier to get to God in heaven. That's what the book of Romans continues to talk about. And it talks about the way that our sin problem can be dealt with. It says, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. How does he do that? He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin and people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life shedding his blood and this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time God did this to demonstrate his righteousness for he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus this passage is talking about how there has to be a price for sin. And if God just gave a free pass on sin, he would not be just and he would not be righteous. But God is so loving and he shows us grace and given us a gift that we don't deserve. When Jesus came to earth, lived the perfect life that we could never live, when he hung up there on that cross, his blood was spilled so that it could cover up every single one of our sins. He took the punishment that we deserve in our place so that if we just believe in what he did on the cross, that he is the son of God and that his blood can give us the forgiveness of our sins, that our sin can be wiped away and God no longer counts it against us. And that is how we can have this relationship with God that begins in this life and goes on for all of eternity. So what does it look like to run to the Father? It means to believe in Jesus, to come to that breaking point of realizing we can't get to heaven on our own. It's not through our good behavior that we can earn it. Because in verse 27 here it says, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? The answer to that is no. Because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. And it is through faith in what Jesus has done for us that we can have this relationship with God that begins in this life it goes for all of eternity. And at this time, we are going to listen to a story of someone's life who was changed when she placed her faith in Jesus and ran to the Father. Please turn your eyes to the screen. My home life was amazing. 
we grew up in a Catholic family, and so I can't remember not knowing Jesus' name, not having him as a friend to pray to and talk to. In college, I started to have experiences and classes where I was having a lot more questions than answers. And went and did whatever I wanted to do. I was in sports, I got the best classes, had the great grades, was studying, had good social groups, um, great friends, and I was replacing one thing for another. If I went to the cancer club and got that fundraiser done and I did so good in it, well, it didn't matter that I partied. And if I, um, you know, was attending church on Sunday, well, that would just replace my sins. That's, that's good enough, because look how good I am over here. That covers this. And I think at the time I didn't intentionally make it that way, or I at least definitely wasn't spending the time thinking through it. Um, and when I reflect back, that's exactly what I was doing, not even knowing or not you know, in the forefront of my decision-making, deciding, oh, this is good enough, so that's fine. You know, I'd, I didn't walk through it like that, but when I reflect on it, that's all that it was, you know? This is, I'm doing this so good, we don't have to talk about that. After college, um, I moved up in this area to become close with my um, now husband, and when we got engaged, I, I was like, we need to, <laughs> we need to get some marriage counseling, we need to be connected to a church, um, and I'm telling you, the loving people of Bridgewater really were the ones who poured into us and encouraged us just in the most recent season, um, I have to give some credit to the pandemic. I was put on an improvement plan at school. I'm a teacher and I pour my heart into it and I care about it a lot. And through the pandemic, I didn't realize that I was on survivalism mode. And um, so the district called me out on some things that I needed to improve on and that shattered my reality because just growing up and always getting straight A's and always doing the right thing, always checking the boxes. You're supposed to do this, done. You're supposed to do this, done. And I, I get a lot of pride from that. I enjoy checking boxes, being in my job, having a passion for it, it's going great. And then the pandemic saying, you could be doing better was like, what? I wouldn't hear it in the beginning. Um, and thankfully was in small group, brought this to people who love me, people who, you know, were able to speak truth in the situation. Um, and just, they just encouraged me to just keep bringing it to God, keep praying, keep talking to him about it. And I feel like every time I did, he was uprooting something in my heart that was in the way of me seeing his truth and experiencing his truth. It was in the way of me accepting the grace, which is I've made mistake or I did not live up to the excellence that we're called to. And so it was this year, April 22nd, and Matt had led anyone who was needing to say, I need to be forgiven of my sins and that I wanna give my whole life to you, Jesus. Um, and I just remember sitting there like, how do I, how do, why do I feel this pull? Like I've never said this prayer like I have just now. Um, it wasn't about what I, what I learned and the knowledge and the logic. It was me finally giving my heart to God. It was me changing, well, I love Jesus because he's so good and he's, no. I love Jesus. He has been there for me. He's been faithful for me all through. If you would come to the Father with that leap of faith, he will meet you there and he will surprise you with just abundant grace and abundant forgiveness and abund abundant joy and life and freedom. And I'm just so thankful that I get to walk in that.
My name is Sarah Empit, and I am here to make more and better disciples of Jesus.